0: To the
1: Andy Greenwald podcast. Hello, my name is Andy Greenwald. This is my podcast. Guys, did you know my podcast is part of the Ringer Podcast Network? There are so many podcasts on the Ringer Podcast Network. I personally think you should subscribe to all of them, from Channel 33 to Jam Session, Keeping It 1600, MLB Show, NBA Show. Do you like shows? We have a show for you. We also have a show called The Watch, and that's the show I do with Chris Ryan, and you probably figured it out, but The Andy Greenwald podcast is now just kind of the black sheep nephew of The Watch. We're going to show up on the same feed. So if you subscribe to The Watch on iTunes or SoundCloud, you will also get this interview show where I talk to people who I am enthusiastic about. Uh, Today's guest is a person I was so excited and honored to meet. He is Chef Eric Repair. He is an acclaimed chef. He is an author. He's a television host. He is the co-owner of a restaurant in New York City called Le Bernardin that has four stars from The New York Times, three stars from Michelin. It's pretty amazing. He is now the author of a memoir called 32 Yokes, from My Mother's Table to Working the Line. It was published by Random House. And I have to say, I was going to read this book no matter what because I love reading books about food. I love thinking about food, eating it, writing about it, whatever. Um, and i was always been a big fan of Repair and his the way he cooks fish and the way he pals around with Tony Bourdain on Tony Bourdain's shows and et cetera. I read this book and I was blown away on an emotional level because this is more than a book about food. This is a really remarkable and unique um exploration of what it means to be a child, to have foundational memories that are some of which are food-based, some of which aren't. He really dives into his past and the emotional connection that he felt with food and also the emotional trauma he suffered due to a relatively unstable home life. And it takes him all the way through uh, childhood, through this really wild, uh, I would say apprenticeship, except it was really a job with um, Chef Joël Robuchon in Paris in the 80s, 32 Yolks is a really good book, and I was so excited to have Chef Eric Repair come into the studio here, the Earwolf studio here in New York City, taking a break from the line um, to join me. He was very forthcoming, very open about his um, experiences writing the book, his experiences as a child, as a chef. He's still friends with Joel Robichon, uh, and we talked about his TV series Avec Eric on PBS. We talked about the future of fine dining and et cetera, Uh, and I asked about a green curry yogurt emulsion sauce, goat yogurt emulsion sauce, because I just can't help myself. Um, Thanks, guys, for listening to the Andy Greenwald podcast. Thanks to the Scottish band Churches for my theme music, and let's get into it. My interview with Chef Eric Repair. I have to say, I I was going to say, even before we began the interview, I I met you briefly a few years ago just to shake hands at... uh, at one of the 0.0 events.
0: Oh, yes. Um, oh, yes, those, those
1: crazy events. But one of the ones in the basement of the Ace Hotel for the, the show, and it was such a perfect moment for me because in the moment I was introduced to you, uh, Tony Bourdain and Sean Brock were busy showing you that they had a secret stash of Papi... Van Winkle. ...behind the bar. <laughs> yes, which I remember is, that. Because I know, you know, having I had Tony on the show before, and yeah. I know that some of what he does is for camera and who he really is as a person. Yes. But to have that... Image perfectly played in front of me that he really was sneaking you whiskey behind the oh, camera. No, no, he was. He was. It's, that, not, it's not all an act.
0: That not, was, was not part of any show. <laughs> no, he was. It was <laughs> real.
1: And was I imagine real. the show that went on after that moment was probably more intense than any show we've seen on TV For because sure. that bottle went.
0: For sure. The bottle went pretty quickly. <laughs> well, that was the idea, right?
1: <laughs> no, but I, to your credit, you acted very. Um, uh, modest, you said, well, maybe i don 't know, maybe just a little bit
0: uh, well I said that many times <laughs> <know. Okay. laughs>
1: so, that, was, that was the strategy i 'm um, very excited to talk to you about oh, we started by the way okay um, oh, okay but uh about uh about uh, your about Le Bernardin, about your restaurant, about your career, but I specifically wanted to to frame the interview around this amazing memoir that you 've just put out this year um thirty two yolks um I found it incredibly insightful, but also very moving. And that's specifically what I wanted to talk to you about, even more than the food aspect of it. Um, sure. <laughs> would you like a little bit of whiskey now? Yeah, I
0: should have some.
1: <laughs> to prepare. <laughs> um, I, I guess just begin at the beginning, which was why, why the memoir and why now? Why was this the time that you felt mm. it was right to, to revisit this part of your life?
0: I was approached by a Random House when I was 43 years old. Today I'm 51, so it took me a long time, right? But for two years I was contemplating the idea. Didn't believe in a of, in, in a memoir. I was. I thought I was way too young, and I didn't want to write something just to write something. Mm-hmm. I wanted some some storyline that would be inspirational, mm-hmm. and I honestly believe that I didn't really have an interesting story to say. <laughs> but then after two years of Good harassment. Right. (laughs) Um, I took a page of, and I I wrote on the page um, the chronology of my life as a young child and so Mm -hmm. on. And I was looking at it and I was like, I have something to say. Ah. And that was the cue
1: (laughs) to start the project. Are you a person who lives a lot in the past or in memories or was just the act of doing that um, eye-opening?
0: No, I'm very much in the present, actually. Yeah. I do not – I'm very – uh, at peace and reconciled with the past, uh, I rarely go back into it, and then I, t- I'm really focused on
1: now. This is what is truly astonishing about the memoir, and why I recommend it to people, even people who don't have never heard the word nape. I think would get something <laughs> from this this memoir for precisely the reasons that you're saying. There is an incredible spirit of generosity in the memory, which I think is very rare and hard to come by. In that Mm. you, from the perspective you have now, you treat the characters, the actors in your life, heroes and villains, with a certain amount of um, empathy. Is that fair to say?
0: Oh, for sure. And actually, the villains, we change their name as well to make sure that they are not um, recognizable. Right, so they're not (laughs) strung up. By their name. Right. Uh, uh, That's for sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was not a tell-all. It was not a vengeance. It was... Uh, writing something that will potentially inspire um, people, of course, in my industry, uh, young people who are coming to the workforce, Mm -hmm. um, and also to uh, couples who have children and have difficulties. And sometimes divorce can be a great thing for family and children, but in my case, and many cases is a, it's bad, it's a catastrophe, and therefore um I open to um my experience in the book.
1: Yes, there's an in, the ability that you have, and we should credit your your co-writer, your co-author. Veronica yeah, uh, Chambers Chronica is Chambers. extremely talented. And the two of you worked closely. Thousands imagine. of hours. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Just, and you did you do work actually at the restaurant? Is that correct?
0: Yeah, we did that in a basement. We have um and are the restaurant, a library uh-huh. with a lot of cookbooks, and we we were sitting there two, three times a week, talking for hours I'm for almost uh, three, four years.
1: I love I love the idea of a library down there. As if uh, a cook on the line can forget something and suddenly say, "One minute well, of going to the bathroom, run and remember how to make a mother not, sauce." Not
0: quite like that, but it's it's. We have about a thousand books, and it's to inspire. Sure, uh, the cooks and they have some of them. The sous chef have access to it, and can look at inspiration and then
1: did the sous chefs know not to bother chef when he was delving into his soul <laughs> yeah, downstairs of course we say it,
0: it's you know do not disturb <laughs> do,
1: do you think the chef's mentality and the and, and the, the need for for preparation and, and mise en place helped you divide your time when you were working on the book in terms of all of your obligations from the restaurant to tv and beyond
0: probably i mean you know i have probably apply in my life um uh, the wisdom that we accumulate in the kitchen to organize ourselves, right? Organization and, and um, I probably apply that to the book as well, for sure.
1: In the way you approached it and yes. divided it. In. Uh,
0: well, I wanted. Well, it's. Easy. I mean, the chronology was simple. I mean, from age four to uh, twenty-four, so I, it was easy to go by by year. And then I wanted to make sure that we were very precise and detail-oriented. Um, in 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 the description of every scene and and uh, because. Very often, it's a bit controversial, mm-hmm. and I wanted to make sure that nobody's going to come back at me and say, eh, it was not really like that. No, right. It, it was, because we went into those tiny, tiny details.
1: I feel like, since this is an audio medium, I need to describe the fact that when you were talking about the period of time, your hands were basically gesturing to a large fish. <laughs> and when you talked about each chapter, you appeared to be removing pin bones from Yes, it.
0: something like that.
1: <laughs> That's the training of a chef. That was amazing. I saw the beautiful fillets emerging. Um, uh, so, th- yes, yeah, so, uh, and specifically about your ability to write about your childhood. Can you, um, for people who have not yet read the book, the book begins with your parents uh, before you were born. You described their meeting, who they were. Yes. And for a brief time, there, it's an almost impossibly glamorous um, for sure. uh, life in yes. south of France. Um, young people, attractive, cosmopolitan people. Yes. Uh, your mother was... Uh, elegant. She ran a dress store for many years. Uh, your father played the horn. Is that correct? And yes. loved jazz. And
0: uh, his day job was to be a banker. Right. But, but <laughs> he, had, he had a second life.
1: I was making him even more romantic. Yes. Um, but is th- is that a fair description of what of for what sure, you Sure. And they
0: into? were living in Saint Tropez in the seventies. Um, not bad. It's not bad. But when you think Saint Tropez seventies couple, uh
1: <laughs> those two things don't always go. Along. Uh, yeah.
0: So they didn't. The couple didn't survive those years.
1: Right. It, the The memories of the childhood memories are so close to the surface in the book, and they're so deeply felt, and that comes across in the writing. Were you able to equally access the happy memories of when the brief time they were together, as you were the the difficult memories? Yes, I am very
0: candid about my past. Um, I I can remember the good memories, obviously, and Mm -hmm. and, and they are in the book. And at the same time, the painful ones, of course, I remember uh, and and. Um, I have no problem to share, the good and the bad.
1: The, but there's a there's a, a vulnerability to that because I think that one thing that we forget as we get older, as as things you know calluses develop or whatever, is how pure uh, child childish emotion is. We say childish almost as if it's a pejorative, but that it's, but it's not. not. no. It's a very pure feeling, and it's yes. almost too intense to to look at, even yes. in memory.
0: Children, young children, are extremely smart, and we know that, Um, and they see everything and they absorb everything with uh, the eyes of a child, like you mentioned, which is very pure in a sense. And um, I went back into into my childhood, and I wanted to write the book with the eyes of that child. Um, And then when I passed my childhood and when I went into the kitchen, Mm -hmm. I wanted to write the book from... The young Eric Repair that was seventeen years old in the kitchen, not from Eric Repair who's fifty-one today, and is looking at his past. So I I immerse myself into the past, and it. It was actually an easy process to be seventeen again and eighteen and nineteen twenty, twenty I mean, whatever it was
1: was it equally easy to be six, seven eight though because the the events that you describe with the breakup of your parents' marriage um the the entry into your life of a stepfather uh, who was I don't want to say borderline abusive was abusive yeah, to you know he was abusive um, for sure that that's I, I guess what I'm saying is when you go back to seventeen eighteen year old um Eric who was going to the kitchen for the first time, there's a very clear through line in your professional life sure. to that person. Yes. Um, obviously, there's a through line through the, the happiness and the pain of your childhood to mm-hmm. who you are now as well, but yeah. it might not be as easy to access or as pleasant to access or, or, very, or even to identify.
0: I was very surprised that my long-term memory is pretty amazing. It, it certainly seemed to be, yeah. And my short-term is really bad. <laughs> So, um i, I, I give up thing. something over the years but but the long term memory is incredibly uh, vivid and when i if you ask me a question about my childhood in in a in the south of france or in uh, in Andorra or somewhere where I grew up, I can go back to the to it immediately um i can remember the smells the colors the the city, every, everything the surrounding everything very vividly
1: were you aware in your childhood you seem certainly in, in the writing of the book very aware of um, almost the duality of your childhood, and on one hand you are you are being um, treated very well in terms of your access to great food, sure. um, great restaurants at the time. Your mother sounds like an amazing everyone in your family by the way, the jealousy <laughs> yes. is very, very strong on this side <laughs> of the microphone but um, but but also the 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 pain uh, that was there too. Um, mm-hmm. So, were you aware at the time of almost the extreme, the split extremity of your experience—that you were yes. living very well in one sense, but internally there was something else going on?
0: Well, for sure. I mean, I was spoiled definitely for lunch and dinner. Um, I was living in a uh, in a very uh, wealthy uh, environment, a very protected environment. Yeah. Uh, I didn't miss. Anything that I needed materialistically, emotionally, of course, uh, when you have uh, parents who are are divorced and you're dealing with a stepfather who's a bully and you have challenges uh, here and there, um, uh, it creates uh, some sadness. Uh, It it creates uh, potential anger at times. Uh, And, and, you know, it was my life like that. Uh, On one side, I was very protected. On one side, I was missing a lot. Uh, of uh, not only affection, but you know um, uh, closeness with with my family.
1: What was the experience like um, admitting the anger that you harbored towards your mother at the time? It does sound mm-hmm. like when your father left the house, yeah. Um, you described being very angry. Well, she mother. left him. Or she <laughs> left him. Right, the two of you left and moved away. We and, left. Uh, you were, ang- But you were able to express the fact that you were very angry at her at the time, but yes. you wrote it with this air of understanding and empathy towards what she of was course. suffering. Of
0: course, because it's always cause and, cause and consequences. And if my mother left my father, it was reasons. But at the time, I was a young child, and my mother didn't want to explain to me in details why she took that decision. Um, today, I would understand uh, why she 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 left my father at the time she she was keeping that hidden from me mm-hmm. and therefore as as a young, young child i kind of blame her uh, of a little bit or maybe more than a little bit for for basically uh, breaking up uh, my, my my family my my father and mother mm-hmm. being together um,
1: is your mother still alive yeah. how how has this experience been for her
0: so she read the book uh, her English is, um, is pretty good, actually.
1: <laughs> oh, but you didn't translate it for her. <laughs> no, I didn't. That way trans- you could get away with more.
0: Uh, it, it, I didn't translate, but <laughs> she didn't need any translation. <laughs> yeah, she knew. <laughs> she got it. And she was, um, I think, emotional about it. And she she wished I wouldn't have shared everything. But ultimately, she's happy that the book is out and that ultimately she sees the inspirational side of the book. mm mm-hmm. Um, so she's fine. She's reconciled with her past as well.
1: Does she? The book begins with this amazing sequence of her taking you to Chef Jacques, a, a, a chef who became a, a very influential figure in your life. Um, you describe everything that he served you with yes. unerring detail, um, yes. down to the chocolate mousse. Does she? When you speak to her now, is she? Was she aware of the gift she was giving you then? Was she aware of how? each spoonful was imprinting itself on you? Ah. Uh, did, or, or was it more just that was how she expressed her affection for you as well, and it was just how it was existing in the moment? She w- wasn't aware of the bigger picture.
0: I don't think she was aware of the bigger picture, um, neither myself. Uh, you know, I thought every kid in the world was eating like like me and, and had those incredible meals uh, three times a day, <laughs> including breakfast. Uh, but... Uh, no, she was living her life and she was expressing her love through the food mostly um, because she was a busy woman and she was struggling as well and uh, I was very young and its it was a way for her to... Show her love appreciation uh, for us to be able to communicate at the table to have a good time and and uh, it was a natural process um, it It was not a lesson that she was teaching me
1: right and not at the time not uh, at the time Something else that I, I was really struck by is that it's it's clear now because of your your career um looking back that that the appetite that you developed at a young age was very much tied to your passion it inspired you, it sustained you in many ways. But in reading the book, I was very impressed by the way you also identified that appetite as a vulnerability in the world that was around you. Um, there's a, specifically a scene that must have been pain, much of it must have been painful to dredge up. But with uh, Hugo's the, the stepfather that comes into your life, and you talk about how you had how sacred the snack was in the middle of the day, lucuite. Oh yes. Uh, and he knew to poke you there. Yes. Do you know what I mean? In, yes. in the way, th- the thing that was most important to you is also the thing that makes you the most vulnerable to those who are bigger, stronger, and can poke you in the most tender spot.
0: Yes. Um, well, I, lo- I had a lot of um, vulnerability when it was Eating times. <laughs> <laughs> Does that continue? Is that, <laughs> yes. If someone interrupts <laughs> your meal, is it lunch and dinner are separate? <laughs> but the snack was interesting because I would come back from school and it was his opportunity to be alone with me, and um, it's where where he was taking advantage and being a bully and uh, also uh, playing tricks on me to to make me react. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a war. But ultimately, I can tell you one thing. Uh, um, and I know that as a parent today, I'm, I have a 12 years old And if you start a war with an 8 years old or 9 or 10 years old as an adult, you're guaranteed to lose.
1: Absolutely. They
0: outsmart you by, by a lot.
1: That's right. You're playing the short <laughs> game and they're playing the long game. Exactly. Gonna, there's going to be a time when... <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's good that you learn that early. Um, what... It, and obviously, the, the book continues with your, your childhood and, and your early experiences um, in culinary school, but I wanted to, to jump forward slightly to when you make it to Paris. Um, how old were you when you arrived in paris
0: I am uh, seventeen years old
1: you 're seventeen years old and you have a job at le Tour d 'argent Yes um, for those who don 't know, can you describe this restaurant because here we think of I think of Le Bernardin as an old restaurant La <laughs> Tour d 'argent was four hundred <laughs> years
0: old is that at the, the time one thousand nine hundred and eighty two four hundred years old. Uh, The king uh, was going there. It was the restaurant of the kings. For many generations of kings, during the French Revolution, they destroyed La Tour d'Argent because it was a symbol of of, the the royal uh, status. Uh, They rebuilt it. Uh, Then it was called Café Anglais. Actually, if you watch Babette mm Feast, she's the chef of Café Anglais, which is La Tour d'Argent. And then the name came back again, La Tour d'Argent. Anyway, they were celebrating their uh, 400-year anniversary I was seventeen. Uh, they were three-star Michelin at the time, at, at their best um, in 1982. Yeah.
1: This is. I, I don't think there is a, a, a comparison in this country to something that is that that old and still yeah. as essential or mm-hmm. seemed as essential to the to the life of the the city yeah. or the country. Is that fair?
0: I think it's fair because. I mean, I have never seen a restaurant in, in, in America that is 400 and something years old.
1: <laughs> no. I think, I think if you make it to 40, you're pretty remarkable in this country. Um, one of the things that I love when you write about arriving there is that you, seem, you admit very readily that you seem to have no real skills for, for being there, yeah. despite your education that you had just completed.
0: Yes. I mean, look, we, we all went to school, I mean, hopefully. And uh, when you graduate, you're very proud and you have your certificate in your hand and, and you... You're ready to go work in any field. I mean, my field was the kitchen, obviously. Mm -hmm. But anyone who has a graduation uh, believes is going to be helpful and has mastered a lot of uh, challenges Mm -hmm. and is uh, ready to help. That was my attitude. But in fact, when you graduate, you're a beginner. Um, And... And in the kitchen, you learn very quickly that you are a beginner, yeah. of course. And it's a, it's an, it's natural, it's normal for everyone. Nobody is born with knife skills. Yeah. You have to be trained. Nobody is born with many skills that are required in the kitchen or any other field. You learn uh, most of the time the hard way. Um if, not, if it's not the hard way, very often you don't learn fully the experience. Yeah. So I was very lucky to learn everything 100% right away at right 17
1: years old. But you had no choice. I had uh, no choice. But you, you, you do speak of the fact that despite not having the knife skills necessary or the collaborative skills necessary, you think maybe the fact that you had good taste or that you came from a different region of the country, yeah. these sort of intangibles helped you. And I was wondering if now, when you were hiring people for the restaurant— how do you consider things that can be taught and things that cannot be taught uh, when hiring people? Well, we can teach
0: skills mm-hmm. and discipline and rigor and, and, and knowledge about ingredients and so on. But one thing we cannot teach is talent. So the ta- someone who has a lot of talent potentially will be able to be not only a craftsman, I mean, someone, um, an expert in craftsmanship, Mm -hmm. but someone who will be able to create and basically be an artist in a sense, Mm -hmm. if we believe that cooking is an art. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Someone who doesn't have that talent will be a craftsman. And it's a big difference. It's like... Someone who's able to have a vision mm-hmm. and, and create, or someone who's, and it's nothing wrong about that, but someone who's uh, duplicating and doing it the proper way, but without any, um, any other quality. You know, it's like ma- someone who, who's going to be Painting a building perfectly. Mm-hmm. And it's, perf- it's okay. I'm not, I'm not being condesc- condescending. Yeah. But you have someone who can create, see a wall and suddenly create a mural.
1: Right.
0: And that's the difference. And someone who's going to b- do a beautiful mural has to have mastered the art of painting a wall mm. and then have that extra talent.
1: Right. Um, Picasso could paint a field of flowers that, quote-unquote, looked like a field of flowers before he became Picasso. Or, or, exactly. or Dali could paint a clock that wasn't melting yes, before uh, he learned to melt it. Absolutely. Do, do, do you have, though, is it as simple as having a uh, a test? Not a test, that's the wrong word, but uh, something that you look for specifically. I know there's a probably folktale, you know, about the chef saying, cook me an omelet. And then, <laughs> yes. and then in that omelet, you see the chef's past, present, and future. Or is that way too reductive? I
0: think that was the old old. F- old school way of uh, hiring people. I don't care if they know how to make an omelet. It doesn't matter. Um, we hire people on, on on the fact that they can be team players, mm-hmm. that they are passionate, mm-hmm. um, that they they have a certain understanding and experience in a kitchen, but it doesn't have to be too much. Then we take care of the rest. They, they work hard. Our duty is to make sure that we're going to give them uh, as much as we can, the right education. And potentially, if we see someone who has the gift, to push him to the extreme, in a, in a nice way, yeah. of course. So we're we're but, coming to the nut yeah, nice way. Yeah, <laughs> in a nice way, of course. But, um, you know, the, uh, in a the kitchen, the most difficult thing to achieve is the sauce. Because the sauce is basically catching flavors in a in liquid, right? Which is very difficult to do. And those those flavors have to be stable. And um, it's when we see the talent in a cook at that stage. It's when we see someone who has it or doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. If you don't have it, it's very difficult to, to go further. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll give you an example. When you make coffee or tea, when you, when you brew the coffee, you drink it right away. It tastes ter- a certain way. If you wait two hours, it's different. Four mm-hmm. hours later is another flavor. At the end of the day, it's disgusting. <laughs> so imagine uh, a sauce where you have 10, 20 ingredients um, and you're trying to uh, balance that sauce and stabilize that sauce for a couple of hours. It requires an enormous amount of knowledge and talent.
1: The talent and knowledge I, that goes beyond uh, three lines in a cookbook. Yeah. It has to. You have to be alive with it in the moment and Absol- shift, responding absolutely. to it.
0: You cannot quantify flavors. They, they do, it's like music. It doesn't. Ex- it's not tangible. It's in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, flavors of mushroom, sage, whatever you you decide to captivate, do not exist as tangible. They are in a, in your head mm-hmm. and and your palate guide you. So it's very tricky. Uh, and some people are never able to do that.
1: Um, someone who was able to do that is the figure that dominates the last third of your book, <laughs> uh, Chef Joël Robichon, sure. who, who's in the news today. We're recording this in July, is, is returning once again to New York City. Yes, I'm very happy about that. Are you happy about that? That's yes. my first
0: question. <laughs> yes, of course. I talked to him yesterday.
1: <laughs> oh, okay, well, we're, we'll come to that. Because, I, I, again, as much as I think it's hard to communicate the, the history of Latour Tour d'Argent, how can you best communicate... The towering figure of Joël Robichon in the early '80s in, in France on the landscape. He was just 38 years old, but was a, 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 basically astride the city or astride the culinary world, almost like like a, some kind of god. He
0: was he was a god, and, <laughs> and <laughs> he, acted like he, his. <laughs> And he still is still um, a, a god in in my world. Uh, Robichon is. I mean, I, I don't know how you can. Quantified genius or not, but he's considered a genius in my industry mm-hmm. and um, he was very young, he was the talk of paris he was then he went to Japan and then he, he expanded his reputation throughout the world. He was considered the best chef of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. I was young uh, in his kitchen and um, he was extremely rigorous and demanding and detail-oriented, something that I have never seen anywhere else uh, except in his kitchen.
1: There's a, and I think it's worth noting that um, I think it, as much as it exists in the American imagination, the, the, the domineering head chef, I think often the, in the imagination it goes to a place of, of physical violence and abuse. It doesn't seem as if Robichon exhibited that so much as it was this unrelenting disappointment and, and uh, criticism. And no matter what you did, and you did, as you describe well in your book, you did everything, good and bad. Good and bad. It was <laughs> never enough.
0: No, because um, perfection is very subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the beauty is that you never attain perfection. But it's also very challenging. And, and Robuchon uh, was very tough on himself and therefore, very tough on, 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 on his team, not in terms of, like, being violent or screaming at us, because he was not a screamer. He was not physical, with, which kitchens were physical at that time yeah. in France. Um, he was not like that, but he was um, so demanding. And when he, he would not get the result from, from the team that he was expecting, you could see the pain in him, like like. Killing him, and at the same time, you know, he will come at you and and talk to you and say, "I, I can't believe you, you did that." I mean, tested. I mean, it's, I don't see the flavors, and he will go on and on and on. And it it was um, something almost like laughable, but not obviously, when you were <laughs> the the victim of the criticism, you were not <laughs> laughing. But if you would make a mistake at eight o'clock at night, he will start by saying, "This is not right. Uh, repair." And then at 8.30, he will go back to it and say, I can't believe you you did that dish like that. And, and how, how can you sabotage the... You have no respect for the ingredients. And then at 10 o'clock at night, he will come back and say... No, really, you want to kill this restaurant? I mean, you don't care about the clients. You don't care about your career. You, you want to do I – mean, and he will go on and on. And then for weeks, he will remind you <laughs> the mistake that you made. Uh, and I think he really
1: felt it. In, I mean, he, yeah. he was hurt inside. He could not let it go. He could, I, not, he could not let go. You, you describe this dish that has the, the most boring name of all, a cold lobster salad. Oh, God. Uh, it is anything but as simple as described there. It's, it's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece, but it is essentially not reproducible it's impossible, and yet you did it
0: and yet we did it um, his demands were in, to our views irrationals, and we thought we would never be able to do it, but everybody in the team was pushing himself so hard and we were working so hard for him uh, and with him because he was with us it's not he was not this kind of chef who just appeared right. uh, at lunchtime or dinner time uh that Miracles were happening, and we were able to do things that look like it's not going to happen ever in a century.
1: On this salad, there were something like 90 composed dots of sauces that you had to Uh, just hand... Dots
0: were part of the decoration of the plates, and it was... Tiny space in between every tiny dots that were <laughs> basically all over the, the outside of the plate. And then the plating of the lobster and the vegetable. It was just crazy insane.
1: But this is where I, 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 I my, my head goes, starts spinning because Picasso didn't have to paint the same painting twice. And, and it, you begin to think, where is the division between artistic genius, which the dish was when he, he composed it. For sure. And then he composes it once and then asks you to reproduce it. Yes, now, I think cooking in general, and tell me if you disagree, is this interesting collision between between art and work and, and repetition and inspiration. Yes. but
0: Ultimately, in cooking, we have to be um, consistent. Yeah. Because it would be very unfair for one table to have one dish a certain way and then the other table to have it differently or for you to love one dish because it's, a, again, in a... Certain way, and then come back a week later and see the dish completely change. Uh, So we we have to have consistency, and uh, and consistency is very very difficult to to keep, um, to attain and to keep. And and therefore, uh, whatever duty I had in that kitchen was already difficult, but to make sure that we were able to reproduce. Uh, 10 times a night Mm -hmm. didn't matter how many times we had to reproduce was um, something that is borderline a miracle
1: but does did a little part of your soul die every time you, you you labor over this, you accomplish this impossibility, and then maybe you peek in the dining room and you see some businessman not even look down as he smears the lobster I, through the sauce? I
0: didn't have time to think about
1: that. You were already making the next <laughs> one, right? <laughs> Sorry. I, was,
0: I was just so focused. Right. Um, but I'm ultimately very grateful about Joel Robichon, who, who's my mentor.
1: Yeah. You, uh, you, you speak of him beautifully. You, you call him your hero yes, uh, at that time.
0: For sure. And, and today he still is... Um, and I talked to him uh, last night. Uh, he's coming back to New York. He's happy to be back. And and I think it's a great addition to the city.
1: Well, you you um, talk about your time there, um, how all the young chefs reacted to the stress differently. And you describe your own reaction as you would be the tourist. You would outwardly be calm. Yeah. You would show yes. up, make your coffee, never be rattled. Yes. Um that's amazing. That's an amazing <laughs> well, <laughs> performance. But, you know, as and, and we can talk about this a little bit more in, in a moment, but you, you, you speak often about Buddhism um, and, and the role of being present, you said, right when we sat down in your life. Is it fair to say that at, at that time, the outward tranquility was not necessarily matched internally? And if not, when, when did that divide begin to, mm. to balance out?
0: I I discovered Buddhism actually when I went uh, when I came to America, and I started to really study uh, in the mid '90s, -hmm. end of the '90s. Um, Today, I I definitely practice every day, and Mm -hmm. it has a huge impact on my life. That is translated in a secular way. Yeah, it is a huge presence uh, in my life, and 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 uh, you can uh, maybe feel it in a book. at the time, it was a passive-aggressive reaction <laughs> to the discipline and the rigor of that kitchen. Yeah. And I didn't want to show that I was neither scared or stressed or anything. I just wanted to show that I was cool. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> even, if you, even if you were Inside,
0: not. I was boiling. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... I, I remember some guys were shaking so much because they were so stressed. And I was like, I'd rather to die than shake. But I, inside my, my stomach would be like a knot, you know, but I would never ever shake. My, my precision was incredible.
1: One of the more surprising things in the book is when um, you, you are away from Robichon to do a military service, mandatory military service. Yes. And then he calls you. Yes, and you go back now. Without being too much of a uh, amateur psychologist, did you, in writing the book, unpack this idea of you? Know, you you, met, you actually outwardly say you. You write this about the various father figures that you had in your life after the passing of your own father. Sure. Do you draw a direct connection to your something as specific as your willingness to go back to try to once again please him and learn? Is is there a connection to be drawn between the lack of father figure in your life and that relationship or am I am I fishing too much now? I don't
0: think so. Um, so it's my last week as a military. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do in my life but I have no plan to go back to Paris and to work at Robichon. The, the knot in your stomach it, is unclenched. It, it takes me by surprise because he calls me and asks me if I want to come back and give me this prestigious position of chef poissonnier. Yeah. And when I say, I don't know, you have to think about it, it says to me, you have one minute <laughs> to say yes or no. I, um, I can't believe you're still in friends In my with mind, him. I think very quickly, but I'm like, that opportunity and to be with such a genius yeah. will not happen again. So you have no choice to say yes, and you're going to uh, have two years of nightmares, but that will be uh, ultimately uh, you know, coming back in a in, in positive way in in the future.
1: True, but I think even that takes a certain amount of maturity because when I was that age, I couldn't imagine two years. Two years is forever, you know, the, the, thinking of it like a...
0: Well, I didn't know if it would be two years.
1: Because you might get five. <laughs> I <you laughs> was like, maybe I'm not going to make it. But right. But, you
0: know, he told me, he said, look, because I told him on the phone, I was, I remember saying, look, I'm not capable of of doing the task yeah. that you, you're giving me. And he said, don't worry, we're going to teach you. <laughs> don't, don't don't even think about it. it yeah. it's, 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 we understand that you don't know how to do it, but you will in, in, in a, after a certain period of time.
1: And, and you did. Um, yes. The, the book ends with you departing for America for the first time. I yeah. hope that means, ending on a cliffhanger, means that there will be a 33 Yokes, that there will be <laughs> a sequel at some point.
0: Uh, lately, I'm just like... Uh, Thinking about the book that we
1: just did. That's right. I don't want to rush you. And,
0: and uh, I'm not thinking about uh, uh, another, another book, but you never know. Uh,
1: I, I wondered, because you don't get to the part of America, I, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what unites French chefs in America. Um, because from an outward perspective, you, you spoke a little bit about, about um, uh, Paladin in the, in the book. the louis Paladin who you was went, who went in to Washington, yes. Um, but from a completely, tell me, if I could be completely wrong. But I see, um, I, I sense, you know, your calmness as a person and what you do in the kitchen. I see Hubert Keller with his ponytail. Yes. I see uh, Danielle Balud, you know, spraying people with Jarrah of champagne. <laughs> yes. And it's not hard to draw the conclusion that there is a free-spiritedness and liveliness and perhaps black sheep aspect to French chefs that have made their name in America. Is that fair or am I drawing a small sample well, size?
0: I think it something that we have in common in between French chefs and American chefs and all chefs around the world that basically we are dysfunctional. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. So, in fact, if I was in Paris, I would see the same thing. Yes. I would see the, the spring and the ponytails. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, I, I want to say, um, so I I, I had the, the pleasure of visiting Le Bernardin recently for my anniversary for lunch. Thank you. Um, oh, thank you. And it was a wonderful experience. Um, I was thinking about. Uh, I just finished your book, and I was thinking about the experience you had with Chef Jacques, where he recognized your appreciation for the food and drew you in. Yes. Um, and I was wondering how you are able to continue that spirit, because obviously Le Bernardin is not a neighborhood restaurant; it is a different, different experience. It's a four-star, three-star, four-star New York Times, three-star Michelin restaurant. Yes. But my favorite thing about the the meal, in addition to the food, which I have some, I want to ask you specifically about something was we had this young sommelier, and she immediately started asking about what I liked and what I wanted to do and, and s- listened to me and then steered me to this bottle of saint that I would never have thought of. Oh, it's good. Thought of. <laughs> right, so yeah. you know, it's your list. But she, but she drew me in. She said, well, this is what I would drink. You know, and it felt very, it was a human touch that was so warm, and that's what you walk out remembering almost as much as the sauce. Yes. Um, how do you maintain that in a mm. restaurant that is on such a different level?
0: Well co- people come to us to have an experience mm-hmm. and in the dining room, um the captains, the sommelier, whoever has contact with the client um, must have the capability of reading the mind of their client of the, the clientele yeah and we have to deliver an experience that is memorable, and we have people who come to celebrate an anniversary, uh, a birthday, some people come because they are foodies, some people are in love and some people get engaged, some people do um, business at the table. So the waiter has to read um, the mind of the client and then depending on what you are seeking at Le Bernardin, we deliver that. Mm -hmm.
1: That, so it's a, it's a hundred or a thousand, not a hundred, not a thousand, but a hundred Min, individual performances every day. Yes. It, it's never the same restaurant two days in a row or even from one table to another. No,
0: absolutely not. But, you know, like when I, I walk in a dining room, um, I see the clients. I I know right away who are the foodies, who are the business people? Who are the people celebrating? I mean, it's not difficult. The foodies—they the, yeah. look at me like they want to talk to me. They want me yeah. to go to the table. So but they're also taking pictures. I, I, of, everything. I, of course, <laughs> I see, I see, I see them. Um, people in love is—it's easy to see that. Uh, even in the street, you, mm-hmm. you you know when they are. People in business, you can read the table. You you know that they are focused on a discussion and, and and so on. So it's it's. Our job to do that is not that difficult, but you have to pay attention.
1: The thing that excited me the most on the plate, there were two dishes in particular. Um, one was there's an octopus carpaccio that had an anticucho mm. sauce. Yes. And the other was, uh, my wife's entree was the snapper with a green curry goat yogurt yes. emulsion. The reason I was so taken with those dishes is, I'm glad you mentioned earlier, was the sauce. And because yeah. in both cases, I I knew the flavors. I, I've had an anticucho sauce at a you know, Peruvian yes. restaurant. I've had uh, green curry at an Indian restaurant. But these seem to me like the greatest expression of what French uh, gastronomy can do, which is you are open to these ingredients and these flavors, but you ran them through your perspective and that that kitchen and that dining room. So they were a very specifically... Designed Not for the restaurant. Designed for that restaurant. For the
0: format of Le Bernardin, yes. Right. Which they, is a seafood restaurant. Therefore, the sauce cannot overwhelm the flavors of the fish. It's supposed to enhance the the, the qualities of the fish. And um, everything in a plate is actually supposed to make the fish the star of the plate. Right. Uh, the sauce, I, if, if in my opinion, is essential in cooking to bring together the the main ingredient and and, and the other ingredients in a dish. Um, I, I love sauce. Obviously, <laughs> I was well-trained by Joel Robuchon, uh, but I don't see um, cooking fish without putting sauce in it.
1: But in um, addition to, to highlighting the fish, what I loved was you were able to... There's a, there's an excitement and curiosity about the world and, you know, in, in different cultures and different cuisines. Yes. Um, how do you strike that balance? Because I know from you know from from reading this book and also seeing you on television on your show and with and with Tony, uh-huh. your great appetite for other types of food. You are yes, not eating four star French food every night. Um, I and, do actually. <laughs> and, oh, well, you do actually you taste it, but maybe not at home or on the weekends. <laughs> That's right. You have a very different relationship to it than we do. But um, but but because of the nature of Le Bernardin and the clientele and the reputation, you can't. You know, there's this idea that that it it has to be. I, don't, I I can't put words on this. Maybe you should, but there was an excitement and a raciness and a curiosity about those sauces yeah. that I loved experiencing in a dining room that was very calm and 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 respectful.
0: Um, the fact that I live in New York exposed me to many different cultures, different flavors, different ingredients. Uh, I, I eat out, of course, to see what's going on. I travel as well. Mm-hmm. I'm inspired by my surrounding because if cooking is an art, inspiration can come only from experiences, and therefore I bring that back into the restaurant um, and, and we work on dishes inspired by experiences that I had or some sous-chefs um, who closely work with me had. And we make sure that we bring it um, to Le Bernardin, mm-hmm. making sure that uh, the fish will remain the star of the plate. Um, so it means that we can have like some strong flavors mm-hmm. but never... Uh, too pungent, never too strong. Um, it, we always look for a very harmonious combinations.
1: But one of the main takeaways from from this book is your deep, deep love of a more um, rustic cooking. Yes. You, you speak so beautifully of your experience with a farmer named Georges yes. and your experiences with him and at his table, um, which is a very different sort of cooking and a different sort of eating. Do you feel any desire to um, bring that to New York diners or to diners at a different restaurant? Because as you said, Le Bernardin is a specific restaurant. It is yes. it is your co-owner, it is your home, but the fish is the star there. You're never going to have a, a, a dripping roast of something on the menu there.
0: <laughs> no, I'm very, I'm very passionate about Le Bernardin and very dedicated, and it takes my entire professional life. Yeah. Um, I have a restaurant in Cayman Island as well called Blue, which is basically Le Bernardin by the beach Mm -hmm. in the Caribbean with a sense of place as well. Um, I have no desire to expand or do anything else. I'm very content uh, being an artisan in that restaurant, taking care of the kitchen, taking care of uh, the interaction with the dining room and the clients. And and right now I'm not thinking of – and for years I have not been thinking about opening anything else.
1: I guess selfishly, I just want to be able to access the same flavors <laughs> that you described so well in the book, and I'm not well, going to Gascony anytime soon. So,
0: You know, I, my experience in a farm actually was, and an eating soul food basically from mm-hmm. the south of France was essential because I believe that uh, refined food without soul food, which is basically the backbone of, mm-hmm. the, of the dish, uh, is just pretty food, and it's boring.
1: <laughs> I can imagine. I wanted to ask you, since I have you here, about... Um, Sort of the lay of the land. You're 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 obviously a very busy and working chef in New York City. You you see what's happening here. You see what's happening across this country and across the world. And you know, I I I loved watching your reaction to the bistronomy movement in Paris and the episode where you went with Tony and saw a city that seemed almost like you didn't recognize the city you knew better than 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 most. Um, at the moment, you know, it seems that in New York, the highest and the lowest ends of dining are the most robust. There's La Bernardin is La is a beautiful experience. Thank you. We we can now get some of the best fried chicken sandwiches in the world for at sure. like nine different places. Yes, of course. Is there a middle way? Do you see a future for a middle way? Um, have you been inspired or surprised by something that that's suggested to you, oh, this this woman's figured it out or or this group of chefs is to watch in a, in a way to sort of bring the best of both together to the table for a for not maybe not a Friday night dinner, but a Tuesday night dinner.
0: I think it's easy to define fine dining, and and uh, the rest is very subjective. What is what is the middle way? I mean, what is? Uh,
1: I, I guess I, I don't I don't know either. I'm just curious because <laughs> yeah. you know I, I I I've been to Le Bernardin for a, a birthday and an anniversary. Yes. Um, I can go down to, to Fuku or to to Shake Shack. Sure. Um,
0: so Shake Shack is definitely. Uh, not fine dining. No. We know that, but it's well done. It, that's what I mean. So I, yes. I love it, and I
1: don't look yes. down on it anyway. And then I, in
0: between Chez Shack and Le Bernardin is is an entire universe, right? It's yeah, uh, a lot of space, and I think it's it's a lot of young chefs or, or restaurateurs who don't have the budget to build a restaurant like Le Bernardin. I mean, today if you were building Le Bernardin, it would cost probably twenty million dollars. It, it it's not even a rational in terms of, of business model. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, you have some very talented people who open restaurants who are smaller in scale, and they can do some great food, and you can feel the warmth of the service. Uh, it's a different experience. It's not fine dining um, for, for uh, budget reasons, but... Uh, in New York, I think we have we have a lot of small restaurants like that. Yeah. in different areas,
1: uh, in, in the five boroughs, actually. It seems like one of the most essential things about a restaurant is that it needs to know itself. It needs to have a sense of place and, and understand what it wants to do, as opposed to wanting to do everything. Yes, um, absolutely. If you try to do everything, you'll do you'll do nothing. I guess.
0: Well, do you have to be loyal to to your own taste and and
1: soul. Um, and finally, you know, I know. Um, you do a lot of you, your friendship with Tony is very much a part of the public imagination at this point you do television shows with him uh he drags your name through the mud on repeated <laughs> repeatedly um, but for as much as you know you've even done the tour which is good and evil and, and you oh my play God. these roles yes. but you know in 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 reading this book and 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 getting to know you better through the page and and watching Avec Eric, which is your television series on on P- on public television
0: on PBS, then PBS. we did uh, one year on Cooking Channel.
1: Oh, that's right, on Cooking Channel. As well, Channel. now it's on iTunes. There's uh, the the thing that the through line through it is the same through line that I would put to Tony show, which is there is just a deep attitude of curiosity at the root of it. Yes, and it's interesting because I think it's possible to be a an, an acclaimed and accomplished chef and have your, your brand, so to speak, be expertise. You are an expert in many things, but on these shows, you are passionate with the, you're passionate with and curious, and I feel like yes. that's what draws people in, and I find that very interesting to watch.
0: Well, if you're not passionate, if you're not curious, if you're not humble, because ultimately being curious and passionate means being humble, mm-hmm. in that case, you are blind and deaf, and you you don't progress, and you... Static, and you get bored, and you die. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that it?
1: <laughs> well, I've a very like we've, answer. <laughs> that's perfect. We we started with your childhood, and we've ended with projecting death. I, I don't think there's anywhere else to go <laughs> no. except to the bar, um, chef. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, and, and I do hope you'll consider another book in a few years because this okay. is a great one. Thank you so much. <laughs>